Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We're continuing to unpack Revelation. We've been going verse by verse since January. We are, we've been going through the final six chapters of the Bible, what I've kind of rhetorically, sarcastically, I guess, deemed the great reset because it's Jesus coming back and resetting everything. And the six chapters, the final six chapters of the Bible dealt with Mystery Babylon, the doom of Babylon, and then we've been going through chapter 19, verse by verse, of the King of Kings. This is the culmination of everything that we've been waiting for in Jesus from the beginning. And as a reminder, the word revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis. It literally means the unveiling of. So it's the unveiling of who is Jesus for all eternity. As Ryan mentioned, he's no longer a suffering servant. He's the King of Kings. He came to die once. He's coming a second time to rule and to reign. And next week, we'll, set, we'll go through part three of chapter 19, the establishment of the kingdom. And what is that all about? What's that 75-day window in Daniel about that he's going to set up and establish the kingdom? So today, we're going to go through the return of the king and what is this marriage and the marriage supper? What are those two things all about? So it's going to be a pretty fruitful study. I'm, I'm pretty excited about a couple of verses I want us all to keep in mind as we dive into this. Proverbs 25.2, and I didn't put this in your notes, but I've just been reminded of this all morning. Proverbs 25.2, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. So it's the glory of the Lord to conceal things in his word that forces us to dive in and search it out verse by verse, using the anointed teacher that we have in us, the Holy Spirit, 1 John 2.27, that you need no man to teach you, but the anointing that you have will teach you all things. So everything in his word, we've got to take to him. The other thing I want you to keep in mind is Acts 17.11, and I've got that so many times in these slides, but please, please keep in mind Acts 17.11, because I've got a few things in here that I'll be real honest with you guys about. I've never heard anyone describe it this way, and so it's something that has been imparted on me and I've really been thinking about a lot. So we're going to search the scriptures in a big way, but I, I need you to go and search it out for yourself afterward. Do not take Matt Freeman's word for this. Go and ask the Holy Spirit, is this correct? But we're going to try to rightly divide two events, the marriage and the marriage supper, and see what that's about. So Chapter 19, we've been going through this. We've got three parts, 1 through 10. Last time, we rightly divided the Word of God for what we generically in the church call the second coming of Christ. There's once where we meet him in the air, it's the rapture, and then there's a second time where he steps foot on the earth in power, and we are with him. So we went through that verse by verse last time, just all over the Bible, rightly dividing those two events, the rapture versus Jesus ruling and reigning, coming back on a white horse, and we're with him. Today is when Jesus returns, and we're going to rightly divide the marriage and the marriage supper. And then next time, we'll look at him establishing his kingdom. So it'll be good. Okay, the, the 
five, well, seven verses we're going to go through today, 19, 11 through 16. So in verse 11, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. So I just want you to sit on that verse for a second that Jesus makes war. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where God declared war on Satan, that I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is the first title of Jesus in the entire Bible and it predicts a virgin birth. The seed of the serpent is Satan and his emissaries, the offspring of the dark one, the dragon, the enemies of God that has been at war with Jesus from the beginning. And so in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. Remember God said in John, all judgments been, uh, has been delegated to the Son. So Jesus has it all. And I saw heaven open. So remember, this is after the rapture. We've been taken. There's some period of time between the rapture and Jesus coming forward and unlocking the seals, which starts the trigger point for the start of this final seven-year period. And then we had the seven-year tribulation at the very end. This is us in heaven with Jesus coming back on the white horse. So can you just imagine Jesus splitting the space-time continuum? I mean, think about that. He is in heaven. So when we are taken, when we are in the rapture, we are no longer on the earth. We are in the throne room of the universe. It's the throne room. It's the center of all creation. And there's the Father on his throne, surrounded by that rainbow, the four living creatures, the four beasts. The, it's really living creatures in the, the Greek, but they're surrounding the throne, the cherubim. We are there with him. We're falling at his feet. You know, and when you think about in that moment, we're going to be on a white horse with Jesus, following him back down to the earth. And when you think about what is that even going to look like? You just, your mind can't even imagine what it will look like when the heavens are opened and there is just one sitting there, and it's Jesus on a white horse, and he is he's upset, <laughs> to say the least. He's coming back to rule and to reign in power. And if you think breaking the sound barrier is loud, man, just wait. I went to a lot of air, air shows at Air Force bases as a kid growing up, and they'd, they'd bring in the Blackhawks and, and the, the stealth bombers and things and fly over, going Mach 3, Mach 4, breaking sound barriers just to hear, so you'd hear what it sounds like. And this is going to put that to shame. So in Ryan mentioned we're going to geek out for a minute, so we are going to geek out for a minute. But in quantum physics, so they, they've discovered there's actually 10 dimensions, and three and a half is what we are constrained to right now, three dimensions of space, and a half dimension of time, because you can go forward and look back, but you can't move backward or look forward. So you're in this, you can only go one direction. So we've only got access to three and a half of them. The rest of them are curled less than 1.6 times 10 to the 35th meters. They, that's a lot of zeros, as you can see in the notes. It's a lot of zeros. That's why we don't have access to them, because they're curled that way. Well, they're curled that way because the Lord separated out at the fall of Adam the dimensions. See, Adam used to walk with God in the cool of the garden. He walked in the throne room. At the fall, all of this was fractured, and then the world was set to decay in the bondage of decay, as it talks about in the New Testament. 
So Scientific America stated that our reality is nothing more than a shadow of a much larger reality. And it's exactly what Hebrews declared almost 2,000 years ago in chapter 11, verse 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. See, the things that you see all around you are not made of things that appear. And if that doesn't blow your mind, then you aren't really listening very well. But it's mind-blowing because everything around us is just a shadow of a much larger reality, the heavenly realm where our king sits and where what we've generically formed our lives called spiritual warfare. You know, you put that, you throw that label out there. And I remember as a kid thinking, well, what does that mean? It's so misty. It just doesn't make any sense. But it's tangible. The spiritual warfare that we are in every day is tangible. It's physical. It's a physical warfare. The Old Testament angels wiped out 183,000 Syrian soldiers in one night. You know, you don't see them walking around, but they are physical beings that God created. And they're on that other side. We just can't get to it quite yet. We're constrained. But I find it interesting that in Genesis 1, it says 10 times, and God said. And that 10 in ancient Hebrew scribes, they linked that to the 10 dimensions of the universe that God really created, which I think is really fascinating. They, they discovered that without even, even modern physics like we have today. But in verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. So the word crowns in the Greek is diadem. It's a ruling crown. It's not a victor crown. Stephanos is a victor's crown. When we get rewards at the Bema Seat of Christ, we have a victor's crown, not a ruling crown. So you have to kind of divide that in the word of God. In verse 13, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. So in John 1, one of the greatest verses of the, of the Bible, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In verse 14 in John 1, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the Greek, that word's literally they tabernacled amongst us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the word of God, and in the beginning, he was the word, and he spoke it into existence. By the word of his mouth, the worlds were framed, like we read in Hebrews. Colossians 1, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, or in the Greek, the better translation might be, that are held together. And we've talked about how his, it's the literal sound waves of his voice that hold every atom together today in the universe. The physicists have been looking for that forever of what holds these atoms together that are literally there's 10 times the 35th more space emptiness in an atom than there is solid matter. So what's holding it together? They finally discovered it's sound waves. And what they don't know is that it's sound waves from Jesus himself. That's the thing that they are missing. But he spoke it into existence. In verse 14, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. That's us. If you, if you are in the church, you're in this white horse in the army of God, and you get to follow him down to the earth, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Look at Revelation 3, 5 as a promise to the overcomer. 
The same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So who is the overcomer? We talked about this in Revelation 2 and 3 when we went through the seven letters to the seven churches. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? So if you believe that, you're an overcomer, according to Revelation 2 and 3. So you have these various rewards that you are eligible for within the body of Christ. Okay, we are following him. I think I mentioned this last time, but one of my very dear friends, he may be listening right now, but he, he was taken to this moment 30 years ago when he became a Christian, 30 years ago, and he just became a believer, and he was taken to this moment. He was there for three seconds. He had a vision of it, and afterwards, he went to his pastor and said, I'd had this vision, this dream. I felt I couldn't tell if I was in the body or out of the body, just like Paul in Corinthians, but the pastor goes, hey, have you read Revelation 19? He said, no, I've never read it. Well, that's where you were, so let's go look at that. Because the vision he had, he was, it was three seconds. The first second, he was on a white horse, and the armies of heaven, we were all in a horseshoe shape, and we were stacked. Again, you can't imagine this in three dimensions. It's a, it's a higher dimensionality, so you have access to something more. But we were stacked, and in the middle of the horseshoe was Jesus on the white horse, ready to make war in righteousness and judgment. And we were in a horseshoe shape so that every eye could see him. So we were all seeing him. That was second one. And second two, the heavens opened, and we all rode down, down to the earth with him. And then second three was him standing on the mount, on Mount Megiddo, which is where Armageddon takes place. That's what Armageddon means, Mount Megiddo, Har Megiddo. And that was second three, and then it was over. He had no idea what he was experiencing, but that, this was it. And I think that is one of the coolest visions. And then it was some months later, the Lord asked him, hey, what do you think you do with that white horse? Because in verse 14, we follow him upon white horses. So what do you think that is? And he had no idea. He said, God, I, have, I don't know. Well, it, and the word the Holy Spirit gave him was, it was a gift. It's a gift from the Father to you for the millennium, is this white horse. So that's really cool. But in any case, verse 15, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's all capitalized. Remember back in, in chapter 17, Mystery Babylon was capitalized in the text because that's how it was written down by God himself when he wrote it through the scribes. Here it's the same thing. These letters are capitalized because he is the ruler of the universe. So in verse 15, what I wanted to highlight was, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Back in chapter 14, we studied this a little bit, but I just wanted to remind everybody real quick. He will tread the winepress and does not need us to help, but we get to be there. And there, I remember as a kid, when I first really started getting into this, thinking, man, Lord, please just let me take a swing. Let me do something, you know, just to, just to say I helped out. And, but he's, he's not going to need us to, and we're not going to get to. We get to just sit and watch Jesus take care of his enemies on his own, which is how it should be, really. We follow him on our white horses. So the oldest prophecy recorded in the Bible, uttered by a prophet, 
Really, the oldest prophecy in the Bible is Genesis 3.15, but it was uttered by God. The oldest one in the Bible uttered by a prophet is in the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15, and it is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of the saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. And that word in the Greek is an innumerable multitude. So it's not literally 10,000 of us. It's, it's a, a figure of speech. It's a way of saying a lot of people. It's a lot of people in the Greek. To execute, look what he's coming back to do, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches with ungodly sinners have spoken against him, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a lot of ungodly. So praise God, you can find a way to get godly, and that's to get in Jesus himself. But I love that the, the oldest prophecy before the flood of Noah is a spoken about the return of Jesus Christ, which is incredible when you think about it. It goes all the way back to the beginning. They were wa- waiting and watching for this moment, this moment when the king would return. So what are we seeing here? The fierceness and the wrath of God Almighty, that he'll tread the winepress alone. If you remember in Luke 4, when Jesus opens his ministry at the synagogue, he came to Nazareth where he had brought, been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And when you look at Luke 4 and you read what he wrote, what he read in the synagogue, and he said, this day are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears. What you find in the book of Isaiah of where he was reading, it's Isaiah 61. And this is fascinating. So when you go to Isaiah 61, you read what he was reading from. It's almost the exact same quote, but he stops somewhere interesting. In Isaiah 61, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where Jesus stops and gives the book back and says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. But look what he did not read. He did not read, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. He doesn't read that, and because it hasn't happened yet. He, doesn't, he didn't come to fulfill that the first time. He fulfills that when we ride back with him. So the day of vengeance of our God, Romans 12, 9, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, saith the Lord. So you get a glimpse of that in Isaiah 63, When he comes back. So he read from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 63 is after he smites his enemies. So when he returns on the white horse, we're with him. He wipes out his enemies, and then he goes to save the remnant of Israel 
who have fled to the rock city Petra or Basra in the Old Testament. And they were listening to Jesus' instructions to them from Matthew 24. It's directions to the Jewish remnant that are alive during this period, this seven-year period. And this is them speaking. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. There's only one that fulfills that description, and that's Jesus himself. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? So the Israelites are asking, why are you all red? Why are your garments red? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. See, that's the point of which he stopped reading in Luke 4 and Isaiah 61. He stopped because it's not time yet, but here it is, and it's prophetic in Isaiah 63. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wonder that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, And make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. So notice this is something that happens on the earth. And we talked about this last time, but in Revelation, or many months ago, really, but in Revelation 14 20, and the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles by the space of 1,600 furlongs. So what you see there on that Google map is north of Jerusalem. Mount Megiddo. And when you go down to Basra or Petra, the rock city area where the Israelites will flee, if you go from where the red pin is to the start of the blue line, I didn't draw a straight line, but as the crow flies, it's right at 1,600 furlongs. So that's the valley that we, you generically have heard as Armageddon your whole life. That's the valley, the valley of Jehoshaphat, Armageddon. It goes from there down to Basra. And all of the, remember, all the nations of the world are surrounding Jerusalem to wipe out and make war with Jesus in Psalms 2. And there is nothing dumber you can do than to make war with Jesus. I just cannot think of anything more idiotic than saying, yeah, I'll go to war with this guy. Uh, The the one that spoke me into existence and is holding me together right now with the sound of his voice. Uh, that's not a good move. So, but these guys are going to do it, and they're going to do it because they believe they can win. And it's the only way Satan can survive is if he wins. And so they're going to try, but they're obviously going to fail. So and that was all the way back in Revelation 14. How about this? And he, at the last verse here, verse 16, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So how is this name written on Jesus? Despite what Ryan tried to convince me of a couple weeks ago, it is not tattooed. I promise you, it's not tattooed. Leviticus explicitly says, do not ink your, don't mark your body. So Jesus isn't doing that. But I promise you that, hey, it says it in there. Just go read it. I'm not telling you what to do or not to do. I'm just telling you what the word of God says. So, But I promise you, Jesus is not wearing a tattoo. There's something else going on here. We do know that the Father's throne is surrounded by a rainbow. We know that from Revelation 4 and 5. So 
Here's my theory on how it's written. And again, you guys can geek out with me over physics or not. I don't care. But just, just think about this. So when you, you are due an upgrade, okay, when you get a resurrected body, you are due an upgrade. You will no longer see a three-dimensional representation of Jesus. What you are going to see is Jesus as he really is. The one in his resurrected body that could come in and out of a room at will without going through a door because he has access to those other dimensions that we don't right now. In your resurrected body, you do. And you, so you're doing upgrade. Spectral colors are also known loosely as rainbow colors. Okay, a spectral color is composed of a single fundamental color on the visible part of the electromagnetic spectrum as opposed to a mixture of colors. So even though the spectral colors are a subset of all colors, there are still an infinite amount of spectral colors. In other words, what you're seeing in this table, and I can't, oh yeah, there we go, 10 to the negative 6 centimeters and 10 to the negative 2 centimeters on that side, you can only see the visible part of the spectrum right there, and it makes up the rainbow. Violet, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red. Every color on earth is a mixture of those colors that you can see right now with your body. But the spectrum goes on in infinity in both directions, which means there are trillions and trillions of new colors that you're going to be able to see. It means it's not a mixture of other colors, they're new colors. And you're going to have eyes to see that when you get a resurrected body. And so you'll be able to see the sounds coming off the piano keys. You're going to be able to hear the colors. And you can't do that right now, but you're going to be able to. And that spectrum goes on infinite in both directions. Remember what Jesus said, I am the light of the world? And so in the beginning, God spoke it into existence, all of this, the whole, the whole band. And so to me... It's going to be something radical like that. It's going to be the king of kings, this name written. It's going to be carrying it clothed in light. That's how Adam was before he fell. He was clothed in light, but he forsook that body to step into the place with Eve. So that's my hypothesis, and you, know, you can take it for what it's worth. I think it's cooler to think about than a tattoo myself, but you know, I think it's going to be really cool to see what we get to see in heaven. So the marriage of the lamb and the marriage supper of the lamb. And I'm just going to I'm going to reiterate this several times because again, I have never in all of my years of going to church as a kid growing up dragging my mom and sister to church, even in my studies in college, uh, in my studies since I've been out of college, I've never heard anyone differentiate the marriage of the lamb and the marriage supper of the lamb and what is that about? and who attends what. And so I'm going to do my best to try to give you my thoughts on it. And again, it's Acts 17, 11 the whole way. Either way, we're going to be there, so we're going to find out. So don't, don't get hung up on it too much, but I do want you to be encouraged by this. So Acts 17, 11 says, in case you don't know what the verse says, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. So that's our challenge right now. Open your mind with all readiness to receive what God is saying in his word. And search the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. So that is your admonition, is to go out and search this out in the word of God for yourself. Do not just take my word for it. 
just search it out and make sure that what I'm saying is on sound ground. Or if you see something different, please let me know because I, I would love to study this deeper. But the marriage of the Lamb, a small intimate gathering in heaven, and the marriage supper of the Lamb, a huge gathering on the earth. So if you remember in verse 7 from last time, we read, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So, just here as a reminder about the mission statement here at New City Church when it was founded, the mission statement that Jesus wrote was to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for this moment, for Jesus' return. And what I, I want you to really think about is, are you ready for the real marriage to commence? So have you prepared yourself to be called by your bridegroom to meet him in the air and to attend the wedding ceremony? The, wet, the marriage supper is going to be on the earth. The, this is my thoughts on it from reading and really searching this out this past week. The marriage ceremony is in heaven. It's at the Father's house. And that's even modeled in the Jewish wedding. And you see this in two parables in the New Testament. Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, and then Matthew 20, I think it's 22, what we'll get to next is the parable of the marriage feast. So these two parables, the marriage, the marriage ceremony, the parable of the ten virgins, Matthew 25, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps, remember the church is to be a chaste virgin bride for Christ, and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Okay, so we're going to meet him. And we are in the rapture. We're going to meet Jesus. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And this is all modeling the Jewish wedding so far that we'll touch on at the end. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Sounds like some people in government these days. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And surely we don't. We don't know the day nor the hour the rapture is going to occur. But let's break this down a little bit. The ten virgins took their lamps, torches filled with oil, and went out to meet the bridegroom. So remember, as a reminder, in the Jewish wedding, when you'd establish that covenant, the bride was to ever be ready waiting for the bridegroom. 
and she never knew when he was going to come through the city with accompanied with him, and he would blow a trumpet, and the bride would be set down on a platform where she was lifted up. So even in that, it's symbolic of us being lifted up in the rapture. Then they would depart and go to the father's house where he had prepared a room addition, and they would hold the marriage ceremony. Then there would be a seven-day celebration of feasting and gladness. After the ceremony, after the seven days, they would then hold a marriage supper and open it up to everyone to come join the, the festivities. So that's, that's the model that we're looking at through this, okay? But this is talking about the first part, the being lifted up to meet him and going to the wedding ceremony. So five of those were wise because they had extra oil. The other five were foolish because they did not have extra oil. And the word foolish in the Greek is moros, meaning double-minded. It means double-minded. It means someone that's living foolishly with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. Think of it as someone that's living kind of a double identity and that they proclaim Jesus, but they don't live for Jesus. That's double-minded. Just think about that. In the Greek word, the wise in this parable means single-minded, one life being lived, and it's for Jesus. So these believers are full of light from Luke eleven thirty four. The word wise is from the root word friend, which means to rein in or curb the emotions. So someone that has control over their life, someone that has put the flesh to submission. We talked about that a lot in Esther chapter 9 in Bible study last week. But someone that's living for Jesus that is not giving in to the lusts and desires of the world. Think about it that way. Those are the differences here between the two. Now look at how they're both saved. They both are in heaven, but there's only a group of them that are allowed into the wedding ceremony because they are the ones that sacrificed all to live for Jesus and to not try to live a double-minded life. So the virgins were wise because they allowed God to continually rule their life, which then allowed the Spirit of God, the oil, to come forth and produce fruit. And so you see that in this parable. They ask the wise if they could have some of their oil. They cannot pass, but you can't pass your fruit, your outpouring of your spirit to someone else. No matter how great it is, they have to do it on their own. You have to live for Jesus on your own. Then the foolish leave to buy some, and the bridegroom shows up. So the wise virgins who were ready, worthy, and prepared went into the wedding. The door is shut. And he answers them, I know you not. So the Greek word, it sounds very, very bold in the English, right? But the Greek word know is iado. And it means to have regard for one, cherish, pay attention to, to know intimately. So the, what the Lord is saying here to these five foolish ones is, I don't know you intimately. We do not have a close relationship. Yes, I died for you. You accepted me. You're in heaven. Your eternal salvation is taken care of but I didn't know you as an intimate relationship while you were on the earth. So think about that. It's a call to action to live for Jesus. It's a call not to be lukewarm, like he says in Revelation 3, where he will spew you out of his mouth if you're lukewarm. Jesus does not want a piece of you. He wants all of you. And so if he's, he's saying, submit your life to me, 
and be a partaker of my life and walk in the authority that I've given you. Study my word. Live for me. Lead your family the right way. Lead your children the right way. Be an example to me in your place of work. Do not be double-minded. Don't be double-minded. So those are the ones that are welcomed into the wedding ceremony. Okay? Okay, the next one. Matthew 22, the, the parable of the marriage feast, the marriage supper. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. See, this is immediately you should be thinking of Israel. Because when Jesus showed up, he even told them, had you accepted me, John the Baptist would have been Elijah, and we would be ushering in the kingdom. But they would not. They instead wanted to crucify him and kill him. And it's actually one of the greatest miracles in the Bible that they, that they did because out of that comes the church, the, the bride of Christ. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. So again, he's pleading with them, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Notice what is entangling them and keeping them out of the wedding is a, a method of trade, a career, a job, things that keep you busy. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you are prioritizing a career over Jesus, you have your priorities mixed up. And Jesus is saying, don't pay attention to that. I will take care of that if you'll look to me first. Remember he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So seek him first. Everything else will be added then. He'll take care of it if you'll just submit to him. And the remnant took his servants and entrusted them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers. And indeed, they murdered Jesus. They crucified him and burned up their city. And exactly that's what happened in 70 AD when they ransacked the temple. They still don't have a temple today because of this. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which are bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways. Now, what is the, our walk in the church called throughout the entire book of Acts, from Acts 2 on in the Bible. It's the way. Your walk is called the way. And I love that the Holy Spirit's dealing in a pun, go ye therefore into the high ways, and, many, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. And so that's your call. The wedding ceremony, it's opened up for you. So those servants went out into the highway and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said, the king, then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, let's look at this one a little bit. The outer darkness, it's not hell. He even calls, Jesus even calls this man friend. 
So he's a saved person, but he's in the wrong ceremony. He's in the wrong place. He's not to be there. And so what is this about? He's casting him into outer darkness. The word darkness is skotos, and it means persons in whom darkness becomes visible and holds sway. 1 John 1.6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. That's a heavy verse. So if you say you have fellowship with Jesus, but you are not walking with him, he is calling you a liar. And remember what Jesus said in John, Satan is the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning. So you're li- you are literally succumbing to the doctrine of the enemy. In 1 John 2, 9, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. See, if the closer you are to Jesus, he is the light, it will start to shed everything in your life that you have not submitted to him because it cannot hide in the light any longer. And so if you just get in the word of God daily, I promise you, you will find things in your life that you didn't even know you needed to get rid of. But Jesus will shed those from you. You will be convicted of them because you haven't submitted it to him yet. Ephesians 5.11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, how do you reprove them? You reprove them by being in the word of God. That's the only way. So, the parable is talking about what the kingdom from heaven will be like, Matthew 22.2. The kingdom originally was intended for the Jews in Matthew 23.37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Remember, this is Jesus on the donkey looking down. Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. And that is a scathing indictment on the Jews, that they would not. They would not have him. And so they would not. They would not usher in the kingdom with Jesus, and thus he died and formed the church. So this marriage ceremony, this is my hypothesis, and you guys can... Again, just take this to the Lord and see what you think. See if it holds truth with rightly dividing the word of God. The marriage ceremony in heaven and the marriage feast and supper on the earth. Is the bride a subset of the body of Christ? So think about this. If Jesus is the last Adam, remember in the New Testament, God declares Adam as a foreshadowing or type of Jesus, a foreshadowing of him, a type or model of him. And he, and he certainly was because he chose to join his bride in her predicament and to, and to shed immortality and to die for her. And so certainly he is. But Eve, the bride of Adam, was taken out of his body, out of the side. It wasn't the whole body. So Adam is the whole body. The bride removed as a subset of the body. So Eve was taken out of the side. And it's in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So what came forth? Remember when Jesus hung on the cross, he shed blood on his hands, his feet. He actually bled seven times, if you look at it in the Bible. Uh, Seven always being the number of completion on behalf of what God does for man. 
And so he was whipped. He, he had the helmet of thorns. It wasn't, I think in the Greek, it's actually a helmet, not a crown, not a, just a circular shape. But in any case, he bled. Well, he, his side is pierced, and out comes a mixture in John 19. With a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. So why does the Holy Spirit differentiate those two? It certainly means that he was dead, because when your heart stops, the blood and the water separate in your body. But there's a pun here. The Holy Spirit's dealing in a pun here, because out of his side came water. And when you go back to the wilderness wanderings, the water always represented the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When, when Moses struck the rock and the outpouring came, the second time he was supposed to speak to the rock, but he didn't. He was angry, so he struck it again. And he was supposed to model the first and second coming of Jesus, which is why when he does it, he doesn't listen to God. He doesn't speak to it. He strikes it, and thus he can't inherit the promised land. God puts him out and Joshua and Caleb take his place to go inherit. So water comes out. The overflowing of the Holy Spirit is for the bride. It's really for intended for everyone, but the bride's the only one taking part of it because you're not squelching the Spirit in your life. You're allowing the Spirit to overflow out of you. You've submitted your life to Jesus. You've given him in the throne room of the universe. You've laid down anything that you are carrying and burdening that was sin separating you from the Father. And so I just think this is so fascinating that a bride was taken out of the side of Adam and out of Jesus comes forth blood and water. So to save everyone, but the water being representing the overflowing of the bride of Christ, kind of the same thing. Okay, John the Baptist called himself a friend of the bridegroom, separate from the bride. And actually, if you look up the word bride in the New Testament, it's only found in one place outside of Revelation, and it's right here in John 3. It's the only place in the entire New Testament. And I think that is amazing. It's not found again until you get all the way to Revelation when speaking of the bride readying herself for Jesus. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled." See, John the Baptist is calling himself a friend of the bridegroom, not a part of the bride. And it's exactly what Jesus said when he said, the law and the prophets were until John. In other words, that relationship in the Old Testament closed with John the Baptist, and then the church was formed where the Holy Spirit indwells you and I as a believer. And then if you, if you want to be a part of the bride of Christ, you've got to let submit everything to God and to Jesus, and let that Holy Spirit just overflow out of you. But I love that John even makes that differentiation right here in John 3. The Old Testament saints who will attend the marriage supper, just clarify that, the supper, not the ceremony. The ceremonies in heaven were with Jesus. It's a small, intimate gathering. The supper on the earth, where when Jesus steps from on the earth, he resurrects the Old Testament saints. And this is exactly what Job means in chapter 19, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at that latter day, or in other words, the end of time, end of days, upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. In other words, when I am buried and my body is totally decayed away, 
I'm going to be resurrected when that Messiah steps foot on the earth. And I'm going to have my resurrected body and I'm going to see him. And he's going to be a part of, like John the Baptist, attending the marriage supper to celebrate with us in the church. If your works abide the testing of fire at the Bema seat, you will have on the garment of fine linen. So from Revelation 3, 4, if your works are burned up, you'll be found naked, just like Adam and Eve. And the word in the Greek, all the way back there in Genesis, means that we were once in a position to array ourselves, but we chose not to. So that's pretty heavy. It's a choice. You can choose to submit your whole life to Jesus or not. In Zechariah 3, Joshua the high priest was barred from ministering to the Lord because he had on filthy garments, which is it's amazing. Even that, it's a model. Because the man in this parable did not have on the proper attire, remember he was denied admittance to the wedding festivities and the king cast him out. The cast out simply means he was sent away or put into another room, a separate area outside the wedding celebration. And the absence of the wedding garment does not prevent a believer from being in the area of the kingdom, but it does prevent you from taking part in the festivities, thus being forced to view it from a darkened area outside, just beyond the brilliant light of God's presence. Another way to think about it is that outer darkness in all those parables is the area of less light, meaning you're a little further in your relationship from Jesus from where the Lord wanted you to be. And when you... When you think about it that way, I hope it, in, it instills an urgency in you to foster and strengthen and grow your relationship with the king. That's the point, is that you can't hold on to this world anymore. You've got to let it go, and you've got to live for him. And, and honestly, let's be honest, most of us don't want to hear that we need to persevere, run the race, submit our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, right? It'd be much easier just to say, let me just give my life to God. I've got my ticket punched, and I'll get all the blessings of inheriting the kingdom with him, right? That would be a much easier message to digest, but I think when you rightly divide the word of God, there's a difference between entering the kingdom. You cannot lose your salvation. Do not misunderstand. Once you are saved, you are forever saved. No matter what you do in this life, you are forever saved. But Jesus wants you to be clothed in righteousness with white linen, looking for him. And that means living a life that is in submission to him. So in 2 Peter 3, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, meaning the elements around us, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God? So you and I have the opportunity to hasten the return of the king, which is amazing if you think about it. You can hasten unto the coming of the day of God. And that's exactly what you pray in what we generically call the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. You're praying that Jesus steps foot on the earth. Some things have to happen before that, we know biblically, but we don't know when he's going to call us home. And that's the point, is that at any moment, you're going to be found doing something when Jesus calls you home? And the question is, what is it? What are you going to be found doing? Are you going to be found living for him or chasing after the world? And if you're found the latter, you're going to be disappointed. I'm just being totally honest with you. So looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of the God, wherein the heavens being on fire 
shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. That's that new city, the namesake of this church, the new Jerusalem. From Revelation 21, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. That's how you want to be found, is without spot and blameless. And the only way to do that is to be living for him day in and day out. You're going to go home if you're saved. Again, do not misunderstand. You're going to go home. What you need to differentiate is what happens if you live a life for him and if you live a life for the world. Either way, you're saved. You're going to be in heaven, but your place with Jesus is much different. Now, as though I had already attained, either we're, we're already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Look at Philippians 3.13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. And again, we kind of talked about this a few weeks ago. But remember Lot's wife, when she was saved from the doom, she still looked back. And God said, don't look back. And Jesus said, any man that puts his hand on the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. What he's saying here in Philippians is look toward the prize that is Jesus. Don't turn around and look at the world that you left behind. Look toward Jesus. That is what you're reaching for. Lot's wife looked back because she longed for what she left behind. And thus, her walk was stopped right there. She was unfruitful for the kingdom from then forward. She became a pillar of salt standing right there stuck. Yes, she was saved, but she wasn't productive for the king. I pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So hold fast. That's exactly what Jesus declares to us in Revelation 3.11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So you have something, an inheritance, a reward waiting for you that you can lose. It's not your salvation. It's a different issue. It's an inheritance. It's a reward with Jesus. It's to rule and reign with Jesus. So some rewards in the Bible, these five crowns are listed which I think is amazing. And this is probably not an all-inclusive list. There could be an infinite number. But these are the ones that God has called out in his word in the New Testament. The crown of life, which is obtained for suffering with him in James 1.12 and Revelation 2. The crown of righteousness for loving his appearing in 2 Timothy 4. The crown of glory if you fed the flock in 1 Peter 5. The crown imperishable for pressing on for Jesus in 1 Corinthians 9. The crown of rejoicing for winning souls and evangelizing in 1 Thessalonians 2. So in Revelation, there's rewards for the overcomer that Jesus speaks about. To eat of the tree of life in Revelation 2. Remember, that was barred all the way back in the Garden of Eden when the fall happened. God set a cherub with a flaming sword that, that blocked man from access to the tree of life. The reason was because the tree of life provides immortality. And God didn't want Adam and Eve stuck forever in their fallen mortal state. So he blocked it for them. But access is restored in the new heaven and new earth. You're not hurt of the second death in Revelation 2.11. There's hidden manna. Remember, manna was the angel's food in the wilderness when they were wandering around. The white stone with a new name on it. You have a new name. If you remember all through the Bible, 
God's people are given a new name. Abram was Abraham, Sarai was Sarah, heck, Saul was Paul. And you think about that all through the Bible. How cool is it that Jesus has a new name for you? that he knows and he is ready to present it to you with this white stone. What that means, and when Rome ruled the world, you had to carry around this white stone that gave you access to different things. And God is using an analogy here. This white stone is something that gives you access in heaven. It's got a new name on it, so you have access to something. Power over the nations in Revelation 2.26, a white raiment in Revelation 3.5, pillar with a new name on it in his temple in Revelation 3.12. You get to sit with Christ on his throne in Revelation 3.21. And finally, the end of, very end of the Bible, you get to inherit all things. You are a co-heir with Jesus. And if that doesn't get you excited to live for him, man, nothing will. Because you cannot imagine what is on the other side of this waiting for you. It's not just the trillions of colors that you're going to, to finally see, but it's living in a resurrected body that is immortal, that you will forever be with the Lord. And the Jewish wedding, just to close out here, the ketubah, there's a betrothal made, a payment of the purchase price, a bride is set apart. The bridegroom departs to the father's house and prepares a room addition. The bride prepares for the imminent return at any moment for Jesus. There's a surprise gathering, And then the hoopah or the wedding ceremony. And then it's actually followed by a seven-day feast and then the marriage supper. If you look at this, it totally models our walk with the Lord. The covenants established in 1 Corinthians 11. The purchase price was none other than Jesus himself. The bride, that's us right now. We are to be set apart, living a sanctified life for him, chasing after the Messiah and submitting to him in all things. You're reminded of the covenant in 1 Corinthians 11. The bridegroom, Jesus, departed for his father's house in John 14 to prepare a room addition. And then there's going to be a surprise gathering for his bride, the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, where it's followed by the marriage ceremony at the father's house, which is a small, intimate gathering. It's not open to everyone. It's open to the bride. And there's seven days of celebration followed by a larger gathering for the supper, which is huge and open to many guests. And that's what you'll get to experience on earth when we return with Jesus. So the wedding in heaven and the marriage supper on the earth. And again, this is just, I just want to remind everybody, this is just me trying to search through what Jesus said about and to see how does that fit with what Revelation 19 is breaking down. And I'm just encouraging you to please go search it out. Just go see what the Holy Spirit says to you. You have the anointing that will teach you everything. And so again, if you want to shed everything off your life, you have to get in the word of God. It's the only way. How do you build your faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's the evidence of what you don't see right now. It's exactly what we talked about earlier with those other dimensions where Jesus sits. And he is the substance of all that we hope for. So why is faith important? Again, I had grown up my entire life taking my family to church, and I had never heard anyone tell me that faith was defined in the Bible, and it tells you why it's important, and it tells you how to go get it. You've always heard these just this misty term of, well, you've just got to have faith. What does that even mean? Have faith in what? Well, it's important because Hebrews 11:6 says, 
It is impossible to please him without faith. You cannot please God if you don't have faith. So how do you get it? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the only way to build and get faith and to be pleasing to God is to be in his word and let it wash you with the renewing of your mind. And how often should you do it? Again, Acts 17, 11, daily. You don't just exercise once and have a healthy body, right? You have to keep doing it. It's the same thing with the spiritual side of who you are. The piece of you that is created in the image of God that is indestructible whether you wanted it to be or not. You have to exercise it in order for it to build. And that's what you do by reading the word of God. So in order to do that, you have the anointing that lives within you as the church, as the teacher himself, the author of the word of God that indwells you, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But to get that anointing first, you've got to be saved. So if there's anybody out there listening to this or watching this that does not know Jesus, it's super simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And it's that simple. The thief on the cross could do nothing to add to his salvation. He just had to submit to Jesus. But it's amazing that even his testimony has echoed throughout eternity of that you didn't need to be baptized to get saved. You don't have to go give to the poor to be saved. You don't have to attend church to be saved. You just have to call on the name of Jesus. And that's all he did. And he entered paradise with Jesus right then after the cross. And so you can make sure you've got a one-way ticket to the throne room before everything in Revelation that we've been reading up to this point takes place. In Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. See, when you give your life to Jesus, if you'll stop holding on to habits or sin of the past, if you will lay it at his feet, he is so faithful to forgive you and to wash it away. And he not only forgives, he forgets according to Hebrews. So don't let the enemy lie to you and chirp in your ear that, hey, you're not worthy of this. Do you remember what you came out of? You're not worthy of that. You're not worthy of being called a legitimate son of God. Do you remember what you did in your past life? That is from the enemy. And in Jesus' name, you need to bind those words and cast them out and not let the enemy weaken your walk because Jesus will not remind you of it. It's gone away. He has taken it off of you. And how can you reason together? You can't walk with Jesus unless you're in agreement and to get according to Amos 8. And if you to get in agreement, you have to be in the word of God. So I'm, I am just imploring all of you, I hope you have an urgency to go and read your Bible, get into the word of God daily and just let the Holy Spirit teach you these things. Write down your questions, let him teach you and share with people, share with, with the the people in this room, what God's doing in your life. So with that, I'll close us in prayer real quick. If you've got any questions about anything, you're happy to email us right there. That should be, that email address should be updated soon, but for now you can reach us right there. Lord, thank you so much for everything you've given us. God, I thank you that we have the opportunity to be a chaste bride for you, Jesus, to meet you in the air and to go home in heaven, our true home to enter into that wedding ceremony, we have an opportunity to be an unashamed bride for you. 
And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have prepared a place for us from John 14, a room addition on the Father's house to welcome us home and to bring us into that place to forever be with you. So Lord, be with these families as they go out into this week. Let us conquer in our lives for you and with you and pray and take authority over our children to let them be to be built up in your word God I just pray that they would leave this place renewed people with a fervent fervent desire and passion to chase after you in the word of God and to shed anything that people are carrying in their lives Lord let us lay it down at your feet and submit it to you we love you, Jesus, and we thank you again for everything you're doing, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.